Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Heather Gold, a speaker, podcaster, activist, a geek comedian who creates interactive performances combining theater, stand-up, and the net. She's appeared on NPR, BoingBoing.net, Tech TV, Air America, Wired, The Wall Street Journal, and a dozen more. How's it going, Heather? It's going well. I'm excited to talk with you, Brett Terpstra. How's <laughs> you, it going with you in Minnesota? It's uh, it's warm and sunny and beautiful. Um, nice. You do so much stuff. Like, it's hard to put together a synopsis introduction for you. Uh, I'm one of those hard to soundbite people. But you know what that means? It means I'm worthwhile. I agree. I'm really excited to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. So, okay, among the many things you do is something called tumbling. Tell me what tumbling yeah. is. I mean, the truth is, if you want to be really succinct, I connect people in a room. I just do it in lots of different ways. And sometimes on camera. Tumbling uh, is a, a Yiddish word. Do you, you know probably some Yiddish that you don't even know that you know. I am currently working on a podcast with a rabbi. And as a result, because I'm an atheist and I thought the idea of an atheist and a rabbi doing a show together would be fun. And it has been. My rabbi likes to say that you really don't have to believe in God at all. I think that's the beautiful thing about a lot of rabbis. Yeah, it's a cool thing. Like it's one of the votes for Judaism, right? Well, he's not at all offended that I am. No, they like, don't care. Actively anti-organized no. religion. No, we're, it's so not Christianity. I mean, that's the thing. Christianity is just like our very successful sequel spinoff. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's really our best up there with communism and psychoanalysis. It's our big, one of our biggies. So I did not know, though, that tumbling, tumul, to tumble would be a Yiddish word. Yeah, I think that there's a German word too, but uh, and there's you know a lot of German and Yiddish. But tumbling is um, a tumbler is somebody who it's a pretty old job that was paid uh, to get people to dance at a wedding, and started using the word to mean a certain thing after um, connecting with Cly uh, at a talk Clay Shirky was giving when Here Comes Everybody came out. It's quite a while ago. He was talking about an early sort of uh, flash mob experience. I think it involved ice cream somewhere. <laughs> I can't remember the details. And it was like, wait, people are doing these crazy things and we don't know how it's happening and why would it happen? And uh, Kevin Marks, who you may know, who's often on This Week in Google and Gilmore Gang, and I did a podcast with him and uh, Deb Schultz called Tumul Vision. And we all sort of stood up and said, we know exactly why it happens and how it happens. And Kevin, the the least Jewish of us, was like, yeah, it's tumbling. I and mean, it's really a good word for it. It's just not that um, we did we did try to popularize the use of the word for some time. There's still not, I don't know another good word. It's a way of engaging people that isn't top down. It's not a, a hierarchical way of getting people to do stuff. It's a very participatory way of making connections. And and it was a job in the Catskills when people like Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks used to work there, Mel Brooks was a tumbler and their jobs were to help get people involved in the show or help them have a good time when they were vacationing. Um, if you see, uh, what was that movie? Dirty Dancing. Have you seen that? Oh yes. So, so the big finale in that movie is, is 
uh, Jennifer Grey, right? Baby, this person who's staying at this family resort and she's in the show, right? The big scene is her big jump and yeah. he holds up everything. Right. So that is a person who's quote unquote from the audience, but she's the star of the show, right? So what does it mean when you're staying there all the time and you're working there? People who had those jobs who are performers or musicians or drummers often, you know, led hikes and took people's baggage and all that kind of stuff and carried around weighted tables, but they also connected with people and pulled them into shows. And, and that model is really different than one to many, which what is what media and performance has been for a long time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I, it's kind of the like hype man for the crowd then a hype woman. Well, it can be a hype man or, I mean, in a lot of the context we've used it in when trying to apply it in business situations. And if people are curious, they can go to tumblevision.tv and there's a hundred podcasts with a lot of pretty amazing people who are talking about it in different situations from journalism and Andy Carvin talking about how he covered the green spring to, you know, how to connect people inside companies. I mean, product managers have to do it. Anything that ever happens at really big companies, especially if they're bureaucratic, usually happens because someone's sort of tumbling it. They're kind of, it's usually been unpaid though. And it's not been a skill set that's been formally taught. And yet I guess part of what I've been sort of saying is, you know, the more networked a situation or a company or an era culture you're in, the more you need to do it. I mean, the words pop used in popular business now are like, I guess I'm going to, I like that phrase. I'm going to keep that pop. Like instead of pop culture, we have pop business. Now the words people use in pop business are, are like engagement, right? You'll hear that all the time. Oh, engage your community. They don't mean you really care about each other and are there for each other when <laughs> chips are down and, 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 uh, you know, they mean that these people need to be involved. Now yeah. it's very tough in my personal feeling for people to be super involved if you're just wanting the window dressing of so-called participation, which is what a lot of say, social media is, is designed to do now without meaningful involved, like ongoing involvement. So like clicking a, a thumbs up button is a pretty incredibly weird way to then determine that people are what you call engaged or care. You think um, so? but, that, but, but that's, that's what we have. But so, if you tried to get a meeting going or something happening among lots of people or social movement or made something new or collaborated with a bunch of other people that don't all live in the same place, you'd really need to tumble pretty good to make that really happen. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. I do think, however, that being able to like or favorite anything does give you some kind of metric as to engagement. It doesn't give you... It gives you a metric as to clicking. On the button. Well, yeah. It, and it doesn't give you sentiment. It doesn't tell you how people are engaged. But at least, like, it's a metric to say this many people cared enough to click a button. That's that's right. It's about clicking the button. I, I It's not nothing. I personally am, don't think it's the most meaningful of things. I... I have to say that there's nothing on something I like Facebook I consider that. meaningful. No. <laughs> um, I, and I think you could design for more and build situations that presume more human involvement. Like I'm interested in the way we, you know, 
go and meet people. Well, and, and that's kind of what you do, right? Like everything you do is about interaction and bringing people together or making people engage. Is that? I that's, hope. Well, I mean, I do a lot of joke writing and storytelling and sometimes it's me telling a story, but when it's live, oh, part, did that come through? I hope not. You know, sometimes Skype gives you those. I'm not hearing any Okay, problem. great. Um, but I guess what I would say is I, I got very interested, I mean, in large part because of my early experience in the web and the net. So that was sort of the influence of the internet for me was to realize, oh, you can have more people just talk to each other uh, without it always coming from the sort of Dane source behind the podium or the camera. And that was so exciting and unexpected. Which leads I into... I didn't expect that to be so so amazing. Because because why do we, I started wanting to know why are we telling stories in the first place? Like we're using it sometimes to connect to each other. Storytelling is not a thing you do alone. Which leads into um, what you do with the unpres- uh, unpresenting mm-hmm. talks. So... Uh, because I started to perform in this way that involved an audience, I was involved in the web scene kind of early and South by Southwest early. And I did a lot of shows there. And I had one show where I started to do a joke where I asked everybody who here's had repetitive stress injury and someone yelled, we can't raise our hands. And it got a huge laugh. And I thought, what if I didn't write all the jokes, which was an idea I got from software people. Not from comedians. <laughs> How so? What, what if this was like object-oriented software? What if I worked on making this happen and connecting it? And yes, writing jokes, but I tried to set people up for punchlines in part of what I was doing. Now, I studied improv at Groundlings in LA and I loved it. And there wasn't an improv group up here to be in. And a lot of nerds were very just jump in and funny and witty. This is long before we had Twitter. And I loved the surprise of this great line. Like, I just thought it was hilarious. This person's job. I mean, the room loved it. And I was like, well, why not embrace that? That seemed to me to be the improv response was to say, this is great. Instead of, oh, I hate you for getting the attention away from me. What happens if I work on that? And because I was involved with early webcasting, I was at, at Apple and, you know, thinking a lot about how the web was going to change media, the entertainment business. I realized, well, if we do these shows the same all the time, they're going to get copied really easy online. At some point, this stuff will, you know, audio wasn't happening yet, but we were, we're working on it. So um, what can you do that's different? What can you do that, as people would say, adds value? So all of this led to me doing these shows where I would ask people things in the audience and pull them on the stage and connect them to each other. And then people there started asking me and staying very long time in some of these shows. And and a lot of nerds were like, how come no one leaves? We all have short attention spans, but we're here for hours. And I get asked to do a Google talk about it. And then people asked me to teach them. And that's sort of my hopefully not too long a story about how I came to teach unpresenting workshops, which is how was I doing this stuff? How could I show you how to speak to an audience to be in, in part and then also connect that audience, involve that audience, whether that was a meeting or a talk. And I liked the idea of talks being more conversational because we were so talking to each other all the time online and doing participatory sharing stuff. And it seemed so weird to be at a conference. I mean, my main conference in those days was South by Southwest, but it seemed so odd that we'd be there 
in this room and only one person could say anything. Because what I love the surprise. Like, what if someone else had the answer? It was a room full of such informed, smart, interesting people. And we didn't get to see each other all the time. Why would all the, t- the talking only be in the hall? Why can't we do that right here? So I started working on that. And I got, I think, pretty pretty good at it. That's the one primary reason I don't go to conferences because those situations bore me. I've learned way better from a conversation than I do from being talked at. And I really wanted to make these things be conversational. And and on a really deep level, and this I could talk about forever. I don't know how much interest people here. Jill Soloway just gave a really good talk at TIFF about the female gaze, which I want to recommend people go listen to. And if you're really interested in some weird parallel thinking that is also someone who thinks a lot more about tech, you can look at this one section of site I have called with.heathergold.com. I started around early, maybe before we started using the phrase social media, like 2003, to be obsessed with the with kind of relationship thing. And I really believed that once we had these, we, we sped up the way we could talk to each other. This idea of talking at each other was just not going to cut it in a world where if all you were going to do was be transactional with other people, other people would always do it faster and systems like network systems and automating stuff with machines and servers was just going to, someone else was always going to out transaction you. (laughs) So I always, I felt like this was sort of our hope. This is my deeply feminist hope of our moment and relational hope of our moment was that the human skill, which has a lot to do with being embodied and feeling, and that's stuff I deal with when I teach these workshops. I, I'm talking about it in this podcast because I can talk at some length and give some context. It's not always phrasing that I would use when people say, why am I going to learn to, you know, I want to learn how to present and why would I go do it this way? Um, we talk about feelings and that's dumb. I want to learn about visual presentation of information and um, how am I going to help my KPIs and, um, you know, the kind of stuff that the language people are generally more traditionally comfortable with and, and told is important. I'm going to convince you. How do I persuade you with my slides and presentation to buy my software or take on my idea and spread it through the company? And I guess I would say feeling to me is underneath all that stuff. It's the driver of everything in the situation. It's the least dealt with thing. And I think from what you said earlier, Brett, this is a place, a thing you and I have in common. I, I like to talk about the least dealt with thing thing people are uncomfortable with the thing that no one wants to I mean I think a lot of comics are let's go there people are afraid of that let's let's go there (laughs) because that's usually where it's the most interesting I would 100% agree with that I do not I do not thrive on things that people are comfortable talking about I thrive on things that people have to dig deep and be vulnerable in order to express I really like people and I really like nerds. And part of why I stayed in the web world was because of the the earnestness. And I feel like it's the great gift of the nerds. I said this on Leo's show a long time ago on Twit. More than intelligence and liking problems, which is good too. It's just this earnestness. And I think that is an incredible asset in communicating that a lot of people who may think of themselves as introverted or afraid to be heard or misunderstood, um, undervaluing themselves. And for me, it's a great joy in working with people in a room to show someone in a very tangible way how to use that in themselves to get and hold attention and to use that for 
power for good to be really with people, not to think I'm going to manipulate you into this thing because you can't manipulate people into liking anything. You can manipulate into a certain amount of stuff, but you'll never get genuine love through manipulation. It's not, it's not purchasable. Are you introverted? I think in some ways I am. And that would probably surprise most people who've seen me publicly or know me because I definitely have hugely extroverted parts of myself. I like people and I enjoy conversation with people a lot. People, people on stage are so often introverted. I feel like introverts actually do really well on stage. We do. Yeah. We do. But I, but a lot of people who think of themselves as introverted that I might meet at a tech conference or a programming conference are afraid to get up in front of the room or See, there's a difference approach between, someone they don't know. There's a difference between introverted and anxiety and stage fright. Those things are separate to me. Why do you think that? Why do you think that's not popularly? Those those things aren't popularly uh, seen as different. People excuse um, social anxiety with introversion. Uh, They say, "Oh, he's just an introvert," but it is not, in my experience, entirely true. There are a lot of extroverts. I mean, all it means is that an introvert gains energy from being alone. An introvert has a limited time they can be in a conversation before they need to recharge. An extrovert loses energy being alone. An extrovert thrives on being surrounded by people and talking to everybody. And they don't necessarily need uh, those close, intimate conversations to, to really connect with people. And oh, well, I definitely like an intimate. I like both. I will definitely. I mean, I think like a lot of comics, if I'm not on stage often enough, I'll start working out bits with cashiers and waiters. Oh, sure. I do great in in one to three people groups. I can talk to those people for two hours. But if I'm in a situation where I have to talk to more than that or right. feel like I need to talk to more than that, I lose energy super well, fast. That that's a situation I'm pretty. I've been pretty successful at helping people get better at if they want to. If they want to go speak at a conference or deal with a lot of people, run a big meeting or yeah. And I and I like that. I do like those situations. I do like lots of people. All right. So for more on that, people can head to unpresenting.com. But I also want to talk to you about another show you do called Yarn. Okay. Um, you listed as a a new show for women who are Hollywood old. I don't know if it's still new. We've been planning this episode for a while. <laughs> well, it's got, it, it, it exists. It's, you know, it's not, it hasn't been going on for a super long time, but it's been pretty successful right off the bat. Uh, it's And it's inclusive. I mean, you don't have to be Hollywood old to come. What uh, is Hollywood old? 29. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hollywood ancient then. Oh, you're a man. You... You're only Hollywood ancient once you're, um, you know, playing like a deathbed scene kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's comforting for me, I guess. Oh, yeah. Come on. You could still be a romantic lead. Look at Woody Allen. what <laughs> I mean, you can be a romantic lead. You can have an accident that takes off half your face. It doesn't matter. It, You'll be, it, you know, starring with a 12 year old in the next yeah. Why is Woody Allen the the example oh. for that? He's the ultimate. Are you kidding me? 
that when he would still put himself in his films, he just, you know, the, the, the female leads got younger and younger. <laughs> he got older and older. And I always imagined he would end up like a corpse with a baby <laughs> at some point in the movie. Uh, I mean, uh, now, dual now Benjamin it's Button. No yeah. I mean, not, you know, we have a little more uh, information now that we've, the public has heard from his daughter yeah. about some of what's underneath that. But yeah, that's a common thing. But also, you know, ironic, of course, not ironically, he's someone who's written substantial roles for women, uh, and uh, in an industry where studio films, only 4% of them are directed by women. If you want to work and you're a act, female actor, okay, you so, know, you want to be in a good movie. So what is Yarn then? So Yarn is a storytelling, a comedic storytelling show that I'm uh, doing regularly in the Bay Area, although it's possible to do it in some other places. And um, it's mostly a core group of people. I'm mostly performing with some other women, Alicia Dattner, Julia Jackson, and Andre the Wonder Woman, but we have other women come in and do it. And we all do solo shows and long form shows and stand up. And so I wanted to show where we could do longer material. I mean, storytelling shows are increasing in popularity. I mean, have been for some time. Most people, a lot of people know The Moth, at least who listen to podcasts. Sure. Yeah. Which is a very high profile show out of New York and it's been going for a while. Um, but if you listen to that, most of those stories are from men. Uh, so, um, and there are other shows, but I, I put it together for us to work on stuff. And also I very much wanted to show that for an audience of women who are a little bit older, um, who they, you know, that they'd want to go to because traditional comedy venues are not places a lot of women will go to. Sure. Well, so because is that because comedy, there's there's not a lot of comedy for women there? I mean, there's a little bit and there's more now. I mean, there's definitely a big generational shift. We definitely have hit now a period where there's just so many more women who are younger that do comedy than I mean, the difference is 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 pretty huge. Sure. If you did had a number count of like how many women were doing stand up. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And today there'd just be a huge increase at the end of that. So, um, there's some, but those environments are not designed for them and they're, and they tend to not book older comics much at all. I mean, I'm making a huge generality. It's not always sure. true, but, but it's also that has to do with what people talk about in those spaces and what those spaces are like and the expectations. And so if you really want to talk about, um, you know, part of what's been great about yarn is the audience is affecting, you know, what the performers are writing and talking about. Um, and it's just really, it's a really nice experience. I mean, it's not like no one's ever done this. I mean, I think Roseanne Barr, back when she used the whole name, um, she's the tour <laughs> of women's bookstores back in the 80s. Okay. Because she were, I mean, again, well, one, she did pretty feminist material, but two, if you just did mainstream comedy clubs, yeah, it would not. It was not easy to just dive into that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I can see it being especially hard in the eighties. So, are we still referring to like in, when you say older women in the audience? Is this still like thirty and up? Ideally. Oh, twenty nine is old too. If you want. Wow. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, mostly, not only. And it's not only women. And, you know, I want the audience to be diverse in every way. So I worked pretty hard to make it more that way at the beginning so they could grow that way. Um, but but just knowing that's kind of the center of the thing is really nice. Um, and the guys that are there are totally into it and enjoying it the same way. Women have been enjoying comedy by men forever. It's <laughs> It's just nice to have a space where, you know, you can kind of go where you, where you need to go to develop certain certain kinds of stuff. And we're always doing new material. So uh, if you're going to come, you're always going to see something different. So you, you said the audience affects the way the show goes. Would you consider it interactive? Less so than my the shows that I do that are explicitly interactive. But I, can't, I, but I wanted a space where I could work on that stuff if I wanted. So it hasn't been too much so far in a sense that they're talking a lot, although before we start the show, there's a little bit of, you know, I do a little bit of talking with the audience. Um, I think I might, I might experiment with that a lot more because I perform that way sometimes. Like there's a thing I've wanted to play, try for a long time where I wanted to just do a set where I just purely operated like a human Google for the audience um, where I would just sort of connect them only with each other for their questions and see, <laughs> and I've never, I haven't done it yet. And I, I definitely want to try that. So that will be pretty interactive, but not, not as much that way, but just, you can, you know, like any audience, you can tell stuff plays differently in different rooms. And in this case, um, you know, there's a level of relating and people coming with you and an interest in things that makes Oh, Alicia did a story uh, about all the roommates she'd had and what it's like to be a middle-aged woman who still has to have a roommate and what that's like because the expectations for women about partnering and marriage are, you know, such that there's a whole kind of are you are you a failure as a person <laughs> if you are single by a certain age in a way that I don't think men have as sort of the same kind of um story and it just and so that was just in, really interesting for me to see how that went and also just create I mean she had crazy stories about really entertaining stories about slightly crazy people so that it was fun <laughs> but it was just it just was I found it really inspiring to to feel like oh god this stuff that I could never do at, at certain other clubs or I certainly wouldn't want to develop it at certain other clubs um to be like oh people there are people who really this is exactly what they want to talk about um because I think for women in general, I'm not saying every woman and I'm not saying men never have this experience, but for part of part of what le sexism is, is the dismissal of women's voices. That's kind of central to it. So it's an internal thing that you deal with. Is anybody interested in this? Like, does this work? Does this matter that this happened or this thing that's intriguing to me? Can you know you so just getting over or dealing with that own internal tendency to dismiss something that could actually be very interesting or worth acknowledging. Um, I always find super inspiring to see that happen. Like, especially the things that are mundane or day to day, very common. Um, I really, I really love seeing that stuff explored and go, Oh, this counts too. This could be as interesting as anything else. Sure. Why not? So, okay. Um, you have an upcoming show called Everything is Subject to Change, mm -hmm. which is uh, potentially uh, heavy topics. Tell, tell, tell me about that show. It's a comedy, but it is not about 
you know, light stuff. Uh, it's my next solo show and it's pretty far along in development. Um, I sometimes, when I describe the show, say I'm a, an early adopter of massive loss. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit about that. So it's about loss and the pace of change. I went through a period of time about five years ago where within a month I lost the only pregnancy I'll ever have, my marriage and my and my home within a month. And then uh, some people who are close to me months later and um, sort of what I went through pretty transformative experience. So, I mean, like most solo performers I, and most performers, I take my material for my life. And I drove across the country a few times and I moved. And, and so it's inspired by those experiences and by kind of looking at loss emotionally. And believe it or not, a lot of my feelings and thoughts about the internet and San Francisco, because I came back here, I wasn't living here when those things happened. Um, and this place changed at a pace that was mind boggling. And I mean, you've been, how long have you been working on, on the net? The web since 96 20 years okay right so so you're somewhat used to pace of change but do you feel the pace of it picking up oh yeah. just yeah. even right <laughs> like even the last five years yes and i don't know how much that's our age uh, no, and, and but technology for sure some is increasing of it is, rapidly right and it's network effect of change right like that's what the net is great at is you know, people are still people and then you just have everything amped up like faster and harder and quicker. And so part of this story is also about um, my experience. There's moments about me using the web and things I learned in technology to help me cope with loss and, and disorientation. And there's also stuff that I'm interested in, although some of this may be in the book version of things, a little bit more that we'll see in the live show about like city changes and economic changes and what it is to have, I think that feeling you can see in the election of everything's changing under my feet. What the hell do I do? And not necessarily to make my life easier. Um, it is a big thing. And I think for folks who, who work on the web and technology, I mean, you, you build apps and you build things that um, that change and you update them. Like I get a I get a I get an update notice from one password every time I log into this <laughs> yep. computer I'm talking to you on every single time. I don't know how many people are working on this thing to give me like a constant change, right? And and that's the model of work. But that also means that there's an emotional toll. I mean, of course, an updated application is not the same thing as losing the only child you'll ever have, and that. You know, it took you a huge amount of money and time and emotion to try to help have. Um, but because I went through such an emotionally challenging time, I got this very intense lesson that I'm still kind of a bit, you know, I've been working on for five years pondering about how one copes with losing things that were orienting to you. Because when you don't know where the dry cleaner is anymore. And you used to go to this place and like there are things you didn't realize you counted on that also aren't there. And I'm sure there are Americans for whom what a man and a woman is there are no, you know, common popular ideas of that have shifted and that's difficult and what it looks like to be American. And, and that's challenging for some folks. Oh, you know, it's challenging just when Facebook changes the interface 
to be like, what the hell do I do now? So when we have these other things happen in our lives and then where do you go and what makes you feel like you exist, you belong somewhere, you have a relationship with a place or people or something. Um, and I'm really interested in that. So it's a very long kind of, uh, discussion I've just given you of different things that interested me, but the, the shorthand, like the one liner of the show would be, you know, you're invited to attend the Shiva of the only child I'll ever have, you know, hilarious, huh? <laughs> you know, that's sort of my quick, a nice dirty, lighthearted summary. Sure. Yeah. Like, okay. So I, I mean, I'm talk a lot about losing this child and that process also because people don't talk about miscarriage and, and loss a lot in public. And I, um, there's space in this piece and some ritual um, and comedy to in terms of, you know, going at it. But that larger thing I wanted to talk about because I would just think for you and for uh, people who, you know, who listen to your podcast would have all kinds of interesting ideas. I would love to hear from them if people want to tweet me or email me and hashtag EISTC about how you deal with change and loss, even online. I mean, I have one post I haven't, I have to re kind of finagled up to put in on my blog i still would post on my blog maybe i'm one of the few um <laughs> about dealing with people uh in my contacts who have died you know like yeah. when i i went i just deleted this year you know a ton of people and what that was like and what it's like to resist taking them out and and those are small little little things but i i think I mean, we have so much talk in, in the tech world about what is agile development or how do you change working with people or working on something in software. Like People like you, I think, know the most about how to constantly update something or how to work with changing mediums and changing platforms. But I don't think the tech world has approached emotion almost at all. And I think it's a thing we're, we're really weak on in, in American culture and um especially white americans and i think i think it's desperately needed because i think we need help with that all the way through sure. everything going on because you just even if things change for the better it's still an emotional adjustment i i, I find it fascinating and, and you already said that you know obviously they're not equivalent but you draw a correlation between a change in Facebook's interface and losing mm -hmm. a child and, and a marriage and a home. This is, I mean, most people would look at that and, and scoff like that's a ridiculous idea, but it, there is an emotional correlation there. On a, just, if you look on a spectrum of like cognitive adjustment of who am I, and what am I doing? I mean, I would put the Facebook update way on the one end of that spectrum, right? I'm not trying to say it's of the same meaning in life, but when you just, Maybe because for me, I lost the sense of losing everything I could relate to or I could count on around me. I had friendships I lost, like my core friendships, like it all went at the same time, um, close to the same time. And so I came to rely on Facebook for social contact with people. It came to mean a different thing to me. And so then when you have to adjust to, I lived in a different place where I didn't know where things were. And for many of us, if we spend more time online and more time socializing and social media than we do going downtown um, to do our marketing and see people and talk to them, like, you know, yeah. um, then then it's your town square by default. It's certainly, I don't think, well designed to be that, but it is what we have and what we're using. So, yeah, when there's a big adjustment in those things, especially if you're dealing with other adjustments, it can be pretty disorienting to 
just to go what what's going on here and where are the people and you know what do I count on and and uh where am I here? I think that's a never mind. I'm distraught. I'm not. I don't mean to. to <laughs> I hope people are distraught over Facebook, unless of course the interface change is also this very invasive thing or privacy ignoring thing or emotionally manipulative. Thing. I mean that could right. Be the kind of thing that would make upsetting. you feel like you need to lose Facebook entirely. Well, but then it's not even Facebook. Is that the issue? It's how am I going to talk to Jody or where's my <laughs> sister? You know, those, yeah. those so, are really the things. Where am I going to? know what's going on an orientation or these are the change. people i absolutely i mean there are groups of people i talk to that are pretty core now to me um i have a perimenopause group where four in the morning like that's where we are <laughs> i could do yarn at four in the morning what <laughs> did you say parrot menopause what peri perimenopause is the period of time uh before you're actually through the thing you know while you're while your body starts just Having so much fun. So around around Hollywood old, I have no oh, idea. Oh no, it time. takes a lot more time before <laughs> you get there. But um, that's just you have career perimenopause in Hollywood. Sure, around that, that time, I, and that's true. yeah. It sounds like it's something that could be metaphorical as well. Um, so back it's, to everything is subject to change. So you you you've been workshopping this. How have those workshops gone? Okay, what, what's Great. a workshop like? Uh, I will start talking through, I mean, they're, they differ sometimes depending where I'm at the work, but to just sort of spec out the overall arc of the story, I will just start, you know, going from beginning to end. It depends how much I can fit into the time. Um, and then I'll have a group of people, at least 10 plus people, and I will explore some of those themes and questions interactively with the audience and draw stories out of them and get to know some of them. And because part of what I work on when I build these shows is not just the sort of narrative that I'm telling, but also a kind of social thing I'm trying to put together of how am I going to connect people in the room? What are good entry points for these people into these conversations? What are some of the feelings I'm trying to create? What are moments I want to have happen between people? Um, what will allow that to happen? And, and you know, what's a what's a useful thing that helps people talk more easily, and what doesn't? And that's completely affected by who's in those workshops. I mean, I've done them when I give it, you know, I gave some keynotes a couple of years ago in in Australia, and um, I did some workshops there at the same time I was doing the keynotes, I mean, same days. So folks there talked about different stuff. And sometimes, so it, like that was a tech conference. I'd have a very tech-oriented audience. I mean, of course, we talk about other things, but they might talk about different things than people who want to end up talking about gentrification in San Francisco or um, a room where a lot of people have been divorced, you know, versus sure. rooms where people haven't. Um, I had an anthropology professor friend of mine at one in Seattle talk about share the story of how women in Zimbabwe in some traditional groups um, mourn or, or deal with child loss and miscarriage which was super moving and gave me a lot of ideas and really great so it varies based on, and then I kind of in that sense I'm building not quite database but a little bit you know I'm putting this in sort of nerd ter terms for your <laughs> I guess like I'm sort of trying to build different places I can come from, different moments, and trying to explore when those moments are, when the 
theatrical version of, uh, I think this is the right term you could tell me, you're the software developer, when the call is, you know, when people go, retrieve this, I need to know this thing. Sure. You know, I'm going to go into this soup of possibility and I need this something to be specifically relevant. So I'm having moments like that. I'm trying to build moments like that. And I'm trying to build social connection and, and change sort of what the social space feels like. So those are the things I'm mapping by trying, by trying things iteratively. So, so in nerd terms, in nerd terms, your audience is the, the database and your query and the users. That's right. At the same time. Well, your and workshop, the, the, uh, the, the people in the workshop would be the database where you, you're, you're, you're doing that to learn how you want to, how to get the reaction you're looking for from people that you want to connect with. It's a bit, Jeff, in the sense that I'm, yes, and I'm mostly also, believe it or not, looking for the collective sense of the feeling more than the individual sense. So it's important to me that by the time the show's quote unquote done, that I can have these unexpected moments where I'm surprised too. Well, sure. But I know it's going to still work in the overall goal of going from here to there. And also the overall goal of emotionally going there. And that there is collective, not just individual. Because I'm really working hard to not have these moments with people be manipulative. Sure. But be relational. Yeah. Well, because the program itself has no knowledge of what's stored in the database, only knows how to query it and get the results to to integrate into what it, it provides. It knows mine. It, know, it has like a database for me and that's known. And I'm sort of discovering some of that while I'm in workshop with other people. And I was very, so I came to work this way in part because I was so inspired by, I was working in the early web, same era as you and a little earlier, but, um, and people, you know, the idea that you made your site or your zine or webzine, people would sometimes <laughs> say, then, or your e-zine, I'm dating myself, uh, you know, publicly, and it was going to change. I mean, it was different from a printed magazine. Sure. Or other things. So that was interesting to me. I mean, Cora, I did an early workshop of my first show at a artist in residency I had in San Francisco in one of the many artistic venues no longer existing in San Francisco. Um and Corey Doctorow didn't like something about the very first performance. He kind of gave me some of the idea, more of about the way he talked to me. Like he said, you should do this. But I just thought, oh, you would talk about doing it that way. Okay, well, what if I did, you know, I just, I was, so I was thinking about what I saw people doing online all the time, not just what I saw people doing in stand-up. And I also had t- taken improv classes at Groundlings that really uh, influenced me with a woman an L.A. named Cynthia Zaghetti, who also trained, who recently died, sadly, um, was sort of a legend. She she trained Lisa Kudrow and Conan Bryan. She's just amazing. She They both had a big effect on me. So that that have influenced my interest in something that changed, too. Wow. As well as just not, I didn't like predictable feeling stand-up, where I felt like, God, I, I know it's coming, and that comic seems to just be standing there going, I know you guys know this is going to come and they, uh, I don't respect you at all for laughing. <laughs> I mean, you could, I could just feel that. Yeah. And so I wanted something that really uh, surprised me too. It's, it was a good way to stay interested <laughs> was to have built in unknown. Sure. Uh, can, can I ask, are you referring to Cynthia Zagetti from um, Repo Man? And- oh, it must be. 
if she's in, she's for sure an actor. So I didn't know she was in Repo Man. She she did one Seinfeld I know of. I don't know all her credits. I know mostly about when she performed at the Comedy Store. But I, that would make sense that it would be her. S-Z-I-G-E-T-I yeah. is her last name. Johnny Dangerously, Hunk, Repo Man, National Lampoon's European Vacation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a side. Uh, we won't go off the on that character actor. Yeah. Oh, but she was... On, and if you, I don't know how much, uh, I mean, there was just some really great memories of her when she died on Facebook. I don't know if anyone's collecting them. I hope so. But she was just an inc- profoundly good teacher. And it's one of my great sadnesses. I didn't get to personally reconnect with her and, and frankly take more classes. I would love to take, I would love to have a person like that in your life is a, is a real gift. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So with everything is subject to change, you did, you're, you workshopped it, you, you've done workshops, you may do more, people should contact you, um, but also you if they, talk- Well, if they, if they want to, just to make clear, like if you want to host a workshop or when the show's finished and when I tour it and you would like to have it at your, uh, uh, like a house concert at your house, you know, yeah, with which is what friends. You refer to it as a living room tour. Yeah, that's how I've always thought of it. So, so people can, if they want to host, if they're interested in being part of this, you can be, you're on Twitter as, uh, H E A T H R Heather. Yeah. Heather and, like flicker. Yeah. So tweet Heather t- champ always beat me to Heather. <laughs> <laughs> so tweet Heather without the E, uh, with the hashtag E I S T C and and definitely become a part of this what 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 areas are you willing you to go stories. to i'd love your thoughts about like this change adjustment stuff if it's about interfaces the web or pace of any of that stuff or child loss any of it i'm interested <laughs> in hearing other people's web interfaces um, or child loss stories. it's just well, funny that those were all in the same sentence well uh, I'm just imagining, you know, the whole i'm interested in the whole range of it, right? Of course. Well, because that's what i said was intriguing about it, for sure. Well, well, if you, when have you felt, Brett, like, when are the moments for you when you felt like, I just don't even, if maybe you've been fortunate, this hasn't happened, but have you ever felt like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to live. Oh, like, sure. I think people go through, you. I don't know if you're, I think you're public about um, having been in recovery. Like, yeah. I would imagine if you I've become had several so, rock sober, <laughs> yes. there's got to be a moment where you're like, I don't even know what to do today. I don't know where I'm supposed to go or lost like, I two guess of I'm my best friends, build. my my girlfriend, my apartment. Uh, when I say lost two of my like died in front of me, oh, God. and like had to leave the city I was living in, and yeah, it got kicked out of my band, which was strangely a feeling of loss as well. But yeah, That's I've been there. Strange. If anything, where it anchors you, and you're like, "This is me. This is who I am. It's what I do," and then those things go. Yeah. Those are big, hard questions. I mean, that must have been so difficult. What what did you um, what did you turn to to give you any sense of I'm here? My very supportive parents. Well, that's very that's wonderful that you could do that. For as much as I talk about my parents being ultra right wing religious, they are nothing if not extremely supportive and infinitely loving and i am eternally grateful that i did have that to turn to that's amazing yeah i agree um i mean did you did you find yourself in that state longing for really small things that felt familiar to you anything that felt familiar yeah 
And yeah, what did, did you do anything? Changed. Did you do anything to start creating things that would feel familiar? I did eventually. I spent weeks on end sitting, staring at walls, wishing for anything that felt like something I used to use to be productive. And I didn't have any of that because at the same time I lost the drugs that were, I I was state dependent. I didn't feel like I Mm -hmm. could do anything without heroin, cocaine. Mm -hmm. Like it was, yeah. And eventually I did start finding those very little ways to, to start reconnecting, to start finding the things that I hadn't lost, you know, like my, my, my talents with, art and code and things like that and getting back into it very slowly but yeah grasping for those those small familiar things but having to find new ways to access them yeah what were some of the things i mean one thing i i started doing was i started doing couch to 5k with this running app <laughs> that took me 20 years to get to that well i didn't live anywhere <laughs> for a while like i moved like i could stay with a person for a few days and then another person and like, so I didn't have a physical place that was being the same. Yeah. So I wanted something that could be happening all the time. Yeah. And I found that really bizarrely helpful. My solution was to move from, like, that's how I was living for a while in various cities. And then my solution, when everything crashed, when I lost everything at once, was to move to a town in Minnesota with 30,000 people mm-hmm. where I could not get into trouble. And then like the challenge became finding ways to replicate what I was doing before in a small town with you know very little to offer at the time. And yeah, I, I will say that, that 12-step groups, NA especially, were kind of what helped me start reconnecting that's where i found the people who i could relate to the way i used to with my friends right but you know in a in a more healthy way i guess and in a way that's like always available and consistent oh they're just those groups are all over the place yeah like we all made a point of being available and consistent for each other right was very helpful right No, I was always, uh, I've often been envious of them because, um, like when I lost my baby, I did eventually, when I ended up back in Toronto, go to some support groups for child loss, but it's not, those, they're not ever ongoing things. They were sort of, you know, the groups or your participation, the groups, they would meet for six weeks or they would meet for, they'd have sort of a group that would meet for a period of time. No, I went all the time at the, at the time for me, they're the only people I felt like I could really, um, have all my feelings around because I was in so much pain, uh, that it was too much for most people. I knew they just didn't didn't want to be around it. Push people away because they don't. Oh, I don't think I pushed them. They just left. (laughs) I I mean, being, being overwhelmed with someone else's emotions that you can't relate to pushes you. I don't think you intentionally pushed anyone away just by providing the information. Absolutely. I mean, I guess the language I would use, because I think it's a bit blaming to say, I think there are people you can at times push people away. I guess what I would say is it's over people's overwhelm. In this case, my overwhelm can be overwhelming for other people because they also cannot handle a lot of emotion. Yeah. But maybe their own, let alone also someone else's. And from what I found going through it, 
Um, the people who can are people who have been through a lot and learned to, on some level, handle that. Um, there are people who can. So how el- how else did you find orientation after after the 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 month and then per, uh, subsequent months of loss? I ran. I mean, I'm a terrible runner. Terrible. I still do it. <laughs> Me too. Um, uh, <laughs> And I hated running. Oh, I hated running so much. I was a college athlete and we had to, I played ice hockey and we had to run in preseason training. And it was like a joke on my team that I would finish like half an hour after everybody else. <laughs> to the point where like, did she get lost? I think they gave me at the, as a, as a goof present at the end of one year, like this raggedy ends all with, uh, with a map pinned to her. <laughs> like, where's Heather? Oh, I'm running. This is me running. So the idea that I would buy choice, like I've skating, no problem. I like skating, but the running was so hard. So I got, I read Born to Run. I can't even remember why or how or who else I knew had read it. I really loved reading it. It was like the only moment of peace I had was while I was reading that book. And the book gave me like the sensation of running while I was reading it. I'm like, that's awesome. And then I, I just started doing it. Um, it helped it just enormous and the app helped a lot. So I'm going to give two cents of, uh, of support for just the idea that there is something I think in technology that can be emotionally helpful. I'm not saying it's a complete solution and I don't think we've, we know enough to yet to, to do it better. I'd like to see more focus there, but it helped me in large part. It was accidental uh, that I found out that, you know, the way if, I don't know if you ever used this particular kind of approach or apps that track it and people did it before they had an app that trained you, but th- basically it'll, you know, something in your head, if you wear headphones, will just tell you run, walk. And, and at the beginning you're just running for 30 seconds. Yep. I use run keeper for that. Sure, and then you walk for. Oh, does Run Kipper say walk, run? Like if you should? if you pay for oh, really the 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 full version, which they just had like a fifty percent off sale on, but yeah, it'll do. Interval I wish I know, and I would have upgraded. Damn, <laughs> it will tell you. Okay, if you want to get to be running five Ks or whatever it is, it'll walk you through. Yeah, the interval training that gets you there, it'll say, okay, you know, walk for. It, it starts off, I think, one minute run, one minute walk. And okay. then starts increasing the run intervals. Basically, it's kind of the the interval system it uses is perfect for letting me run, but then walk enough to not start to get that tight chest pain that makes me want to quit. So, yeah, it's right. worked well. Well, I mean, I know we, we talked a little bit in the pre-show about you want to, I don't know if you- it's enough now it's fine for you to talk about like doing things in small amounts, but that was one of, one of the ways I sort of accidentally discovered doing small amounts of things instead of large amounts of things and how important that is. Yeah. Uh, I know this is the kind of stuff I don't talk about in the show. This is, I'm going to nerd out with you about it. The show's story and, and, uh, and jokes and stuff, um, and ritual with people with the audience. But, um, but in terms of things that helped me like learning and I th- and another thing I, I learned was that not only you're saying, OK, you like to walk it enough so that I don't I'm not in pain. But what I learned was even more key was to walk enough or rest enough with whatever you're doing resource enough that I actually get the feeling of I want to run. Yeah. When you start the next one. And that was all a difference to connect with the part of you that says, I want to do this thing is very different than I have to do this thing. That That's fun. That happened to me. Like I didn't, I I always wanted to get in shape over the last decade. I've, I got fatter and fatter 
and then recently got like into shape, lost almost 50 pounds now. Oh my gosh. And I do, I, I'll, I'll do the part where it'll tell me to walk and I'll find myself impatient to run that's again. That's right. And that's how you know it's good. Yeah. That's how you know it's working. You're like, oh, I actually want to do this other thing. And also it's going to make me be resourced enough and rest enough that I'm going to be able to do the next thing. It allows the uh, the benefits and the like endorphins to outweigh the pain by kind of modulating the pain aspect of it. And so right. you, and you get more delight out of and out of that the exercise part. thing is how overwhelm managing overwhelm works, which is um, to make sure you have enough good feeling or you're saying in this case, endorphins, but with other things, this positive too. reinforcement in general. Yeah. Just that you feel good enough at whatever it is within you that then you can take on whatever challenge that is. And this is true of emotion, too. Right. Like you have enough resource to then handle how you're going to feel at this thing. And that's partially why the pace of change that we've been building with this network um, is emotionally unsustainable, I think. <laughs> Without us learning, I think it's just going to force us to to deal with the fact that we're a culture that hasn't really dealt with emotional growth. We need to desperately. It will help us with everything. I think it would change everything, including the economy, were we to you know, look at something in this way you're describing with the running, right? Like that... Oh, that I can handle this other, you know, thing that takes energy or focus or um, something from me that I have some capacity for it. Because when you have no capacity and you just, it takes this situation you're in, takes and takes and takes, you just, you end up traumatized. You end up overwhelmed. You end up just flat. Um, there's not a lot awesome that's being generated out of that situation. All right, so we're going to take a quick sponsor break to talk about PDF Pen Pro 8. PDF Pen Pro is the giant Swiss army knife for PDFs with so many tools it can barely fit in your pocket. PDF Pen Pro can add signatures, edit text and images, perform OCR on scanned documents, and export in Microsoft Word format. Only PDF Pen Pro can create an interactive PDF form, build a table of contents, set document permissions, and convert websites to multi-page PDFs. PDF Pen Pro 8 can now create portfolio documents to combine related files into a single PDF and can attach files to your PDFs. You can get 20% off a new PDF Pen Pro 8 purchase in November by visiting smilesoftware.com systematic. Go check it out. So, okay, I have literally, I just counted over a dozen more topics that we're going to cover, hopefully, the next time you come back. Okay. So, would you like to do the top three picks now before we're done? Oh, I have top three picks. Okay, I need to pick three just things I'm loving right now? Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to tell you the three last things that came through my head. No, we're going to do them one at a time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One at a time. I just mean in the sense that I didn't plan yes. it. I'm just telling you literally from what I can remember. That is absolutely fine. I I want to know your top of mind stuff. That'll be awesome. So what's your first one then? Ooh, I can't find it. I wrote it recently like things I want to share with people and I can't find it. Um, Well, the th I just saw a screening the other night for a doc that's going to be on Amazon by Jim Jarmusch called Give Me Danger about the stooges yeah i was gonna say that totally iggy pop right there okay yeah and uh i am somebody who 
didn't listen to that kind of music. I don't even really listen to the descendants of, of as, as influential as that group was. <laughs> I don't even listen to the White Stripes. I don't the listen Ramones. To, no, I mean, I know their music, but I was not somebody who was, I wouldn't have ever even called myself a punk rocker, except especially in the early web years, I knew so many and had so many friends who were in punk rock bands and punk rockers. And I certainly shared a lot of things about, like I loved sort of doing something yourself and not finding that there had to be any rules about crap, like all that, those kinds of ethos I loved, but I didn't, I love a melody. I like Broadway shows, right? Like sure. I... You know, I yeah. doesn't say I, I don't, I can't appreciate this music at all. And, and watching this documentary, I certainly well, was. You, you appreciated the culture. Oh, I didn't even know I did. I'm just telling you <laughs> that I'm telling you all of this to tell you how much I was impacted by watching this. Um, because I didn't come to this as though I'm a fan watching this person that I love. I knew like that Bourdain was in love with him. I knew a lot of friends I had thought he was great. And I, all I knew is, oh, it was somebody who liked to be not wear a shirt on stage like that was it and I was super impacted by um by this documentary I was crying by the end of it I was really really moved by also and shocked at how insightful and thoughtful he is about art yeah. like uh, one of the things I did when I was on my um okay here's a second thing but I want to put more stuff by not just white guys in this list, but um, when I was one of my tri trips when I was driving to New Orleans during the time of my my, my post-loss disorientation, I listened to Keith Richards' life autobiography, an audio, yeah. you know, while I drove. And this movie, but both times I was, I was surprised similarly by Iggy Pop and by Keith Richards. I didn't expect as much artistic insight and really influenced for me like just really interested how true he stayed I'm talking about Iggy Pop now to what mattered to him and what he liked and how at least now not in rebellion he sounds in terms of I don't want to be part of this or that but just I really want to be just whole with myself and I found that intensely moving so I'm going to recommend when that doc is on Amazon watching it because it's even if you're just whether you, even if you love punk and and hit the Stooges, great, you know, or, or some the massive amount of music they influenced, that's great. But even if you don't and you just are interested in making stuff, or being whole or creativity, it's really terrific. So that's that's my very my verbose uh, number one in my way of sneaking a, another one in there. So um, I I saw Iggy Pop live when he was oh. fifty five years old. Okay which is definitely Hollywood old. And with his lifestyle, he looked what I would say, even for a man, he looked old, but he was still up on stage, kicking over amplifiers, ripping I'm his chest with his microphone. Old. I'm really saying Hollywood lets you have whatever job you want. Perception, anyway. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Men but look old. It, no question about it. It was, it was kind of amazing to see that at 55, he still had the attitude and the, self-destructive tendencies that he always had. Of course, I saw Leonard Cohen when he was almost 80 years old. Mm -hmm. And he just had a new album out last week that was kind mm -hmm. of amazing. But I saw him do a four-hour show with no breaks. And, right. then, and then be perky afterward, because I had the good fortune to be in the green room. Um, but it, like it, it, it's amazing to me 
how how thoughtful these guys remain and maybe even more thoughtful than when they were you know cream of the crop of course again i'm talking about all white guys here but yeah no they're but they're both phenomenal artists i mean i i just wanted to give some other options because i don't know how often you have that in your show so i I always like to be like well here's something maybe you guys don't know well okay so we we're re-recording the second half of this and in the part that's getting uh kind of overwritten there you did mention a couple of artists in the last part that i feel like do deserve a shout out you you had mentioned a comedian a trans comedian do you remember who that was um well i know a few but do you want me to still do two more picks or you yes. want you oh, want me to mention them now i, I want you to mention them as part of this conversation about iggy and and his thoughtfulness Oh, you want some other artists that are really thoughtful and, yeah. and powerful? Um, Justin Bond, who someday when I launch, finally launch my podcast, um, my next podcast, which I think will be called Subvert, um, I do have an interview with Justin, who's a huge, um, another huge influence on me, who did a sort of faux drag act called Kiki Nerb for years. Justin is an actor and a writer and um, sort of cabaret performer, performs often at Joe's Pub in New York was based in San Francisco for a while and is, is a really powerful person, uh, an incredible performer, just amazing. I mean, I, I think someone who I'm going to guess like Iggy pop, you can watch them online and enjoy them, but it's another thing to be in the presence of the moment Yeah, of someone who works, you know, a certain way. And I love the live moment, like nothing else. That was, I think also part of what I saw in the Iggy pop documentary was someone who, is creating a feeling in a room and really wants to do that and that and was very aware of kind of social space and how you affect other people and, and through presence and and I find that really moving and really interesting. So Justin also has all of that as a great singer and writer. Um, I recommend uh, V and V is the is the pronoun of choice that Justin uses. Um, and Justin I think is one of the people who popularized uh, MX. As a God, I don't know. I have, I have a perimenopausal moment where I can't remember the word. Uh, what do you call Mr. Ms. Ms. I, I honestly can't remember right now either. The honorific, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, that is we'll an go option. with that. It's an option for trans and gender queer folk. It's anyway. It's the it honorific that um that Justin chooses to use, and um, so Justin is just um like I would I think V's book is called. Life in High Heels. I hope I have that right. I may have it wrong. Uh, so I'd check him. I'd say read read V's book just for starters if you can't go see Justin. But if you can, um, really one of the best live performers I've seen in my life, like a handful of just powerful uh, performers. And um, Is Justin yes. around the Bay Area? No. Just, well, sometimes I haven't known the last time. I guess I ha- doesn't come through as nearly as often lives in New York. So okay. mostly performs there and does shows in the Spiegel tent at Bard and uh, in Hudson Valley every summer. I mean, you know, tour travels and performs around the world. But I think the most in New York. All right. And um, has just a, a sensibility, a very queer sensibility that I love deeply. And for me, makes me feel very whole. Um, a really just tremendous, incredible sense of humor. Like I love sort of sad, funny, like pathos, ridiculousness, 
and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of wrapped into comedy and, and, and kind of a sense of lyricism and storytelling. Like those are my, those are kinds of, uh, performers and storytellers I deeply love. And, um, I have, uh, someone I'm a little bit friendly with in Toronto, David Benjamin Tomlinson, I feel like who can do that. David, uh, Rakoff could do that. If you want to see something gorgeous, watch the video of the, uh, one of the last performances David Rakoff gave with This American Life that involves a little bit of dancing. Can't remember the name of the story offhand. It's one of the last stories he recorded. Um, also, will make you cry, but it's just beautiful and, and funny and cutting in moments. I love that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. So um, check out Justin Bond, like truly brilliant, um, subversive, bold performer. If you want, like in the sense of... Um, I'd say in that sense, absolutely shares with Iggy Pop. Uh, I don't know that, that they're an influence. I think Bowie was for sure. I haven't seen Justin talk about Iggy, but in the sense of someone who's purely unapologetic and within the way they express yeah. and make work, which I, I find really beautiful. Nice. Moving. Uh, yeah. So that, so there's another great recommend and, um, who else am I obsessed with in the moment? I'm always obsessed with things. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm determined to pick a woman, <laughs> another woman next. Okay. How about um sorry, the last three things I saw. There's so many pieces of art going through my head. Um how about uh well, tough to watch her work. I was gonna say Rodessa Jones is very inspiring to me. Because, um, but, but a lot of her work is in the Medea project in terms of legacy because work uh, as a director and a solo performer and musician, um, and, uh, her brother's Bill T. Jones. And, um, I, I was lucky enough to have her on one of my talk shows once. And I don't, I have a recording somewhere. And again, when this podcast happens, you'll be able to get to hear these conversations. Uh, Rodessa started the Medea project, which is. Uh, she worked with women in prison to tell their stories. She's an incredible theatrical storyteller, just really incredible. And someone who gets sort of into the guts of life and um, did a show about when she stripped at the lusty lady. I can't remember the name of that show. It was her first solo show, did a whole bunch of solo shows, did a lot of collaborating with her partner, who's a saxophone player, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Um, just a really beautiful performer, a lot of uh, deep spirit in, in her work and also a kind of, um, no permission asking. I mean, I guess I'd say most, that's a thing I love about artists most just to, you know, especially if like Rodessa, you and the people whose stories you're helping told tell aren't center stage in culture, you know, are harder, sadly to, can be harder to access, you know, need to be heard. Um, that is always moving, moving to me. And sure. I think very permission giving to anyone, because I think it's a tough question when you, if anybody can be, have self doubt about, am I worth listening to? Or is the way I really feel okay to show? I think those are things that hold the cult, you know, our culture back a lot. So sure. I think anybody who does that boldly is giving a huge gift. Nice. All right. I think Iggy would be honored to, to be included with all of these. Um, oh, I think they'd be an awesome. I mean, I would love a, th a guest of the three of those on a show. Be the <laughs> bomb. Be the bomb. They'd be a great, a great uh, um, show too. Yeah. Them all. Yeah. 
All right, so my first pick is far less um, uh, meaningful in any way. So I, I, I've been enjoying the iMessage apps, the messages apps that have come out uh, with the new version of iOS. And one that has appealed to me greatly is called Grammar Snob. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean iMessages apps, plural? I thought there, you mean there's something other than the one that just comes in your phone? Within you messages. If you go into messages now I'm in iOS 10, I'm there. You can hit an app button next to the input field. I didn't know what the hell that was. You can add apps to do all kinds of things, from sticker packs to to like incorporating Spot, uh, uh, Shazam, and Last FM. Uh, not Last FM. Um, Yelp is what I'm thinking of. Oh, this is how why why everyone is much more quickly posting animated gifs. Yes. Well, and that's because, built in now. Yeah, because the pace at which people have been posting that uh-huh. crap I've noticed has gone through the roof with this. Now I know it's this OS release. I get it. Yes. Okay. Um, but grammar, grammar Snob is a pack of, of stickers that let you correct people like when they use Y-O-U-R instead of Y-O-U-R-E. Yeah. If you're one of those people who feels that even in text messages, you should take the time to be grammatically correct, you can now correct your friend's grammar by dropping a sticker with an editor's mark over their text. It will drive people nuts. Every All of your friends will hate you, which is the way that life is in real life for me anyway. So it kind of makes things more authentic for me. Were you someone who was doing that without the app before? Oh, I correct people's grammar instinctively. I grew up with an English teacher mom and yeah, I just... I will correct after they finish their sentence and I have a reply, I will inject a grammar correction prior to actually replying and it drives people crazy. Okay. I try not to. It's not an intentional thing. It's just Well, when it with a sticker pack, it absolutely is. Come on. That's a way of you you've lost that excuse. If you're not only do you have a sticker pack, you're willing to like pre- you know, project to the world and your th- your listeners. This that is very true. This, this is, is this is a thing not only you should do, but more people should do. I think you're <laughs> you're out of excuses. I I 100% agree, and I I do qualify the pick with the fact that people will not like you. I will add on that there is an app from Drafts, the note taking app on iOS, mm-hmm. that lets you insert the content of your your various drafts into text messages, which can be a really good way to like pre-type things or have uh, canned responses or even just share your thoughts on something that you had already been, you know, collecting notes on. I wish I could even understand what you're talking about. What is it? It's also in messages? Well, okay, so drafts is an app on its own that is extremely handy. It sits in my dock on my iPhone because it's the best way to It's just... in your dock? That's what you call the bottom? That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I've never call, known what to call it. It's just the featured little area of a few things. It is okay. the dock. And, and I can launch drafts and just quickly scribble a note about anything I want to. And then I can take that note and shoot it off to anything from Evernote or an email, or I'll uh, save it to Dropbox in my NV Alt folder. And how is it different than using Notes? Well, you are someone I would like to talk to for two hours about Notes, so I know we've gone for a long time. <laughs> it, it's plain text, number one. You can write in Markdown and send it where you want to, and it's basically designed as a very quick capture kind of thing. Notes has a lot of pluses. The most recent version of Notes 
has a lot of pluses. Drafts is just where I like to go because I instinctively scribble notes in Markdown. And this will let me do anything I want to with them. Notes kind of keeps things trapped in notes. I have Byword. Why is why is Drafts better than Byword? Because I can do... Um, and also I have Day 1. Both of those I can, I can mark down. Yes. Uh, day 1, again, is... I, ideally a very it's a closed system you work in day one and i love day one that's not to say it's invalid in any way but for these quick notes like if i want someone makes a movie recommendation and i just want to jot down the movie recommendation i don't want to necessarily create a new document in drafts i don't want to make it a log entry in day one i just want it to go to maybe uh i have a list called movies to watch in nvlt and with day one, I can set up a, a, a lo- uh, I can't remember what the, a destination that will append to that file. So I can just quick scribble the note down and then uh, send it to that file or even not do anything with it immediately. Leave it in my inbox to deal with when I have more time. I wish I could mentally follow this because I'm dying to be able to do this exactly. Like I use notes only because it let me group things in f- like a group, like in a folder. Right. And drafts is not, that's not a primary feature. Drafts would be before grouping. But you say you're still able to say if you have a movie you want to watch, you're still able to send it to something that lets you group it with other movies you want to watch. That's exactly it. It's the thing. It's the instant access way. When I open it, it automatically gives me a blank screen. I type and it saves that as a draft. Then I can file it. Then I can do, I can put it where it needs to go later. It's the way because when I when I'm talking to someone and I want to take a note, I hate, you know, having to find the app. I, I need to put it in, open it, create a new document, type the right. thing, maybe give it a title. So I remember what it is. This is just a way to immediately I open my phone and just start typing a note. So you go back later and organize yeah. where everything goes. Yeah, I do. Well, that's a habit for me anyway. I save every document I work on to my desktop. And then at the end of a day or every other day, I will go through all the files on my desktop and file them or tag them. And then I have I have systems that if I tag something, it'll move it into an appropriate folder for that tag. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, I don't have magic like that. <laughs> that's very custom. That's not a, <laughs> a standard feature or an app you can grab. But well, I'm oh, God, I could talk to you about this all day. I just like the I, idea of a bucket, you know, like a bucket I can deal with when I have time. I like thing is, is I want to be able to find things and not just have a list of 8,000 things that then I never go back to because I took it down and then I can't find it. Yeah. They get lost very easily. Yeah. That's why you have to review so often. But I would do it if there was a more contained, easy way to work through this stuff, which is, I don't know how much you want this in your show because I could talk to you about this forever because, because, because I started using notes, I don't use NVAlt anymore and I miss it. Yeah, I get that. So they don't great. they don't combine very well though. Which they is, don't know how to combine them at all. And now that I have all this stuff in um in notes, I'm not sure what to do. But here's the thing, for example, like the thing I use I use it for a lot, but the thing I use it the most for is writing jokes or writing an idea that I'm going to that's another go back and, and address thing. Like how do you have a system beyond that makes it easy and not overwhelming? Again, back to our overwhelmed question, which to me is like the thing that rules everything. So how do you how do you like while away at that and make that go away? How do you um, 
make it easier to have that second stage sorting of stuff without there being 8 million things in your, in your intake. Like it's a reason I, I guess I, I moved away from simple note, but some part of me knows that's a mistake. Like I feel a little bit stuck. That is a big question. That should probably be its own show. I would love to just be like asking you questions so I could listen to you explain like this thing because I have a very strong feeling you you have very good instincts on this this stuff and it's um it's crippling a little bit for me not crippling I'm getting work done but um I it's probably the problem I most want to solve about workflow and working with this stuff because I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of you're with someone you don't want to spend three minutes like hold that just a minute I have to write this thing down like I creatively have to take notes all the time even in other people's shows I was at a reading for a book another book I'll mention because it's so great um Every Man a Menace by Patrick Hoffman he's an incredible thrill literary thrill thriller writer I strongly recommend checking his books out and his books are at least so far his novels are about kind of drug deals gone people all about to betray each other um he used to be a PI okay that's my snuck in I could just make recommendations for hours um <laughs> So, so I had to write, like I had some ideas and I was like, oh God, so rude. It's the rudest thing at someone else's performance or reading. So yeah, I would love to not be on my phone for minutes. Yeah, I get that. Um, I tend to use apps when I'm in those situations where I am embarrassed to be taking notes or feel like I'm being rude. I'll, I'll generally record audio and then do it later. Really? So do you, when you're, when you're going to your all in bucket like that, whether it's audio, your bunch of audio just recorded or your drafts, when do you do that? Once a day, every hour, how are you doing? I do once a day at the end of the day, I have specific spaces. I review whether it's like, it'll be OmniFocus, It'll be the files I've saved to my desktop and it'll generally be the most recent notes that have been saved NVL, which also come from drafts. And I will take the time to tag and organize everything at that point and then prioritize things. It is, it's a hassle. I was writing a book on tagging for a while and kept realizing that I really wanted to make it simple for people. And it just isn't simple, which is kind of why that project died. Like Mm -hmm. I, I spend a lot of time figuring out how to make this work for me but A, it's rarely translatable, and B, most people seeing even my own working systems would be like, that's crazy. That's it doesn't sound work. crazy to me so far. Like, putting stuff in the desktop makes a lot of intuitive sense to me because it's what's just in your field of vision, so you're going to deal with it because you can see it. Exactly. Uh, and you'll feel like you have to if you want the space there and you need the space to feel like you can work. So that is kind of built in, like, of course. That makes sense to me. Um, the part that's harder for me is now that I have things like, like sometimes a joke file is half written. It's my own other process of mm, how do I make sure I fully flesh out all the ones I want to fully flesh and I don't, they don't get buried. I don't forget about them. I so finish you add writing. a tag to, to work on or whatever. And then you do a ah. search for everything with that tag. And then you, you know, filter that those. sounds so obvious. That did not occur to me. <laughs> that's why you do what you do. And I'm like, I need help from you. Oh, yeah. that's so smart. But now how can I go back? I guess I have a lot of tagging. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you if you haven't done it for years, there is a you need to plan like a whole day to sort through all sure. the information you've collected. And then start practicing. <laughs> yeah. 
create a kind regular daily thing. meditation, but instead of meditating, you tag. Because even though if I'm tagging, for example, and the reason I moved from simple note to notes is if I am working on everything is subject to change and I have all these different bits, right? It, I needed to give it a container. It didn't yeah. feel good enough to me to just have um, something that felt like a way station of here's all the stuff for this show. So that's why when, while we're rewriting NVALT as a new application, BitWriter, mm -hmm. um, we are including the ability to have folders and the ability to do tag searches that will basically act as smart folders. Is that going to be in the phone? Can you put that in the phone? It's not currently going to be on the phone, but that is definitely what we're going to consider once we have a release on the Mac. Yeah, because then, I don't know, there's just something in me, maybe this is a bad instinct, that anytime I'm relying on Apple to sync anything, although they haven't destroyed my <laughs> contacts list entirely, um, that it's a bad idea. Like I could lose, this is really key stuff to mail these notes and they they just screwed up so much. Other, and I worked, I used to work there. Like I'm not an anti-Apple person. I do get it. I don't know if that's the bad instinct, but it's the one I have. Like so some part of me using notes feels like something bad is going to happen. You are, this is my thriller novel is me using this app. Like <laughs> this day is going to come Heather and you're going to have lost every essay idea you had, all your half written pieces. Like they're just going to be gone. So I would mention then there's an app on the Mac app store right now called exporter okay. that will export Apple notes to markdown files. Here's what's screwed up for me to write that down. I have to go into notes. Yeah. And where else am I going to put that right now? And well, then I don't want to. Okay. That's, me, what, that's me, the thing for me is portability. If I'm going to rely on a system, I need to at least know that I can access it from other places. Okay, so you're saying... Which is why I left Evernote, too. Like, it was too much of a closed ecosystem. I can see that. Yeah, you don't know you can get killed in one minute. Okay, exporter, and why is exporter the it's thing a I need It's to a do? handy way to, if even if you're not currently escaping notes, it's a handy way to have the peace of mind knowing that if you decide to switch systems, you can get all those notes into organized folders of markdown files. Oh, big exhale. <laughs> I don't know that you were expecting your top, your three picks to take so long. I, I generally I'm hoping do. My, my questions are some use to somebody else and not they're like, let's let Brett <laughs> tell us what to do. And, you know, I, I do think a future show should include like at least 50% workflow stuff. Well, I just am so confused. Like, uh, yeah, I have my own weird ways of working. Um, and I'm super interested in, years partially because yeah i've like i have so much transcribing i end up having to do the way i write these live shows and i would love to not have to do that for example like oh so many so many different things to deal with because that because especially in creative process there's always once something can get out of your sight you can let it go and that can be very bad but it can also be very good because it opens up brain space for new ideas as long as you have the comfort level of knowing that they are safe. There's safety, but there's also on. thinking back to like the runkeeper stuff, that containment of feeling like something. If you're trying to make sure you get from one place to another and when you're working on a, a play that takes five years or six years to write, which is not an unusual amount of time for one of these kinds of things. OK, that's what they take. It would be nice to help you a little bit more move down the process um, because it's such an all on your own thing 
to yeah. go through um, to be able to work with those pieces a little bit more easily and see them and not have them so buried that then, you know, because it's very easy to work on other kinds of pro things that feel, um, anyway, <laughs> you can scratch that last minute. I just, uh, you're, you're, you're going to like my next pick in that regard, but oh, good. Go well, I'm, ready, I'm ready to write it down in my note that I hope I can find <laughs> later. What's that? Go ahead with your second pick. Oh, I get more. Didn't I give you my picks? You gave me, I give gave me you Justin. MX Justin Bond. Uh, we're gonna it, we're gonna tack those onto the first one unless you want those oh, to be all three of your I picks. I thought you had to make those all in their own things, and I gave you Rodessa Jones. Oh, how fun! I gave you okay. a ton of sub picks. Oh, I that's exciting. Yeah, because you are like <laughs> a list expert. Oh my god! Hold on one second, because I'm gonna go into my uh, into my deep. Well, I gave Couch to 5K, which maybe you guys already know about, but. I don't think anyone's ever picked Couch to 5K before, if you want to talk about that one. Well, you have me talking about it already. It's not my number one uh, thing in the world, but it, I'm interested in kind of a, the emotional design of like that. Exactly what we talked about, I think, is a really helpful and important thing. That kind of how you hold and contain process and how you connect to the feeling of wanting to do something and um, let yourself rest more in terms of dealing with overwhelm. And I'm, I'm hoping it's something that developers will think about and, and all the stuff they design. I think it can have a huge impact on yeah. just because, because, you know, to go back to everything subject to change, we're just going to be so inundated with the pace of change and the emotional stress and overwhelm of it. We need lots of how to manage to handle it. Yeah. And deal with like, even how we feel. Oh God, for sure. Okay. Um, okay. Well, just, I can give some of my absolute favorites. Do it. Um, the play that changed my life. How's that? I'll give you biggies. Yes. Angels in America. What is it? Angels in America. Ah, sure. Yeah. By Tony Kushner. Uh, I would recommend if you ever are around a decent production of it to see it live. It's very long. Uh, you won't feel that way probably watching it. But even if you've seen the film, which uh, uh, Mike Nichols did, which I recommend strongly and features Meryl Streep and him, lots of other great actors, um, see, see it live because there's some theatrical brilliance in it that um, you won't be able to capture. You make it a different thing of it to put it on camera. Sure. Um, and it is... Oh, it's I to me, it's one of the best works of the century, the 20th century. And uh, it tells a very much stories, but it, it, it combines a lot about politics and philosophy and, and the Reagan 80s and AIDS uh, and the impact of AIDS and uh, the closet and the gay community. And it's never been more relevant because one of the central characters, if you want to see a really fascinating portrayal of. Uh, how self-hate works, how what power does to people, what what power really means uh, in a human way. Um, in America, the character of Roy Cohn, who's really at the center and his death, which are really this part of the center of this play, um, are just fast. This is the best way to learn about Roy Cohn, who's just a horrible person, sad person, um, who had a huge impact on America and is still having an impact on us because he was Donald Trump's first fixer. Uh, and so a lot of how Donald Trump got involved, oh, I said his whole name, I prefer not to, 
Um, I don't want to give him any SEO anywhere. That's how I feel about that guy. Don't I, won't, I won't put it in the show notes. <laughs> because, uh, because that's what he lives for right now. That's what helps him. Um, but his entry into politics had a lot to do with his involvement in government in order to get, you know, his dad built public housing. It's part of how they made their millions. Um, and, and there was a lot of corrupt managing and dealing with government. And Ray Cohn was this closeted gay, uh, Jewish, anti-Semitic. <laughs> McCarthyist uh, lawyer. Yeah, he was so filled with pain about himself, and he's such an an interesting embodiment, and Kushner writes him so interestingly to see what it is. Someone who thinks, I mean, this is such a core question of American life, that they can purchase their way with both money and social current, political currency. And believe me, if you don't think political currency is different from money, then you can ask yourself why Peter Thiel felt he had to speak at the Republican <laughs> National Convention. They are not exactly equal to one another, or he wouldn't need to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, or have feeling he didn't drive to be involved in that kind of stuff. So um, here's a guy who is sort of the embodiment of that question. You know, can you, you know, really it, it, as an individualist make your life work, make everything work on your own and through those things alone? You know, of course, not Matt caring about who else is oppressed or hurt and, and why. And um, it's a pretty incredible, incredible portrayal and karmic showing of of uh, his influence and there are m many characters in this play, but, um, you know, it speaks to me a lot as somebody who came out in the eighties, who's queer, who, uh, and Jewish. There's a lot of, it's a very Jewish play. Um, I, and very relatable and very honest about those parts of itself. And I think you sometimes see in a lot of later 20th century work by great Jewish artists, there's a lot of, uh, ambivalence and fear and hiding elements of Jewishness or trying to transpose them into other cultures or project them in other ways or overwrite them. I mean, all of sitcoms were, you know, uh, for a long time were driven by the old adage, think uh, Yiddish, write British. Uh, I heard Carl Reiner say that about the Dick Van Dyke show, which he created. So there's so much of the, my culture was about trying to, you know, and it shares this with, with queerness, trying to, to hide itself to survive, uh, and, and also then confusing that with with uh, sometimes confusing that uh, discomfort and ambivalence with what is just genuinely good or not good. It's kind of lack of self acceptance in there. So I, I all that stuff is in there. Um, he, he manages, I think, in this work. It's a very long work. It's two two plays put together. Um, to create very uh, spherical, holistic experiences where you get nuance and lots of ways in which moments play out and affect lots of people. And so you get to experience different subjectivities as well as soaring uh, ideas and, and principles and concepts. And I'm, as much as I'm a nerdy person, I love thinking about stuff, I find any kind of work that only prizes what is clever and what is conceptual to be very cold. And so this is full of real people, a nuanced life. Nobody's, um, you know, they're very whole. It means people are all good or all bad. They're, they're people, interesting people. Um, and they're also both individual and representing huge swaths of things we've been through in, in the culture. So I can't say enough about, uh, about the work, the language, the poetry of the thing. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible piece of work. And, um, 
it's so it, it's so inspiring to me that even in you know my some of my hardest moments, um, it's it's given me hope. You know, just that that exists gives me hope for people. Excellent. So that's my second pick that if you want something to really make (laughs) things better, give it, give it time or just read the plays, you know, start that way. And then that won't take you as much time and then see what it is to see them produced. Also a mini series, apparently. Yeah. That's the filmed version that Mike Nichols did, which is incredible. Uh, Watch that too. But like, I, like I would recommend me, man, I don't feel loved as much as I do. Like check all the, the ways at it, you know, check the play, read the play, watch that. Um, that series and see it live. I mean, really, there's nothing like seeing that thing produced. All right. Wow. All right. And um, yours? <laughs> so my second one is going to be uh, an app called Ghost Note on Mac. And it is a way to take a note that is specific to a current web page or document or image, or you can write your own short little scripts to basically make it work with any app and associate with any piece of that app. You know, like if you're, if you have a specific document open in say Ulysses or even like pages, you can Mm -hmm. add a note for it. And this was cool when it came out, I was intrigued by the idea, but they recently added a browser that then brings together all the notes you take across all of your you know, various apps. And I'm looking sources. for this in App Store Ghost Note. I'm getting they nothing. Have, it's no longer in the App Store. If you go to, let's see, ghostnoteapp.com. All right. You'll see it. Um, and like I said, the concept, the original concept was was intriguing. But now that there's a browser that lets you take document specific notes and then see them all together and jump back to documents and whatnot. You can add to-do items and lists to each one. Say, you know, you're working in Photoshop. You say, here's what I need to do on this image and then close it, you know, and move on to something else because, you know, you'll see that list the next time you open it. So it's like post-it notes for your apps? Yeah. Yeah. And is it, let me ask you if this is true, given what you said about putting stuff on your desktop. Is it because for you, you can't remember always because there's so much crap you have to do and having a visual thing is what forces you to do the thing you need to do so that because you want to return to the kind of clear space. So, so you're like, okay, I have to do this thing. For me, it's about peace of mind. If I'm working on a project and I have this list of things that still need to be done on it, I can't, I don't have the headspace to start anything else. Even if I feel like that one's at a standstill or that one's at a breaking point, or I need to wait for something, my brain doesn't let go of that checklist of things that still need to be done. And if I can put those onto something, attach them to something, or even just take a note and tag it in a way that lets my brain rest. It clears your head. And you, right. but you put it within the app where you were working. Is there other places where you, are there other places well, where you put it? Well, generally that stuff goes into NVL. I'll put like a file name and be like, here's what needs to be done when I get back to this project. And then I, I can quickly search for, mm-hmm. you know, and then like OmniFocus will have it as a to-do item. I can link that to a note or include a note in OmniFocus. That kind of stuff works. This is just, uh, and and it's not something, GhostNote is not a huge part of my workflow yet, but the document browser or the uh, the note browser that they've included has made it potentially something that I want to start incorporating more. I don't even understand what a note browser is. 
Well, okay, so so you take a note on an image in preview, and then you take a note on a website that you're visiting. Mm-hmm. The browser then pops up, and it shows you all of those notes from across the system instead of you having to go back to that web page to see the notes that you took on it? So it's a way of you leaving to-do lists around the house if your house was your computer but then being able to easily access them all at once. But yeah. then all at once going, what are all these? I left all these notes everywhere. What did I leave? Right. And and as a bunch of notes scattered around the house, it was useless to me. An intriguing idea, but relatively useless. But now because with the you browser. Would forget, unless you were in front of the exactly. thing. Exactly. Because exactly. it's all about what's in front of you. Yeah, I'm definitely ruled by what is in front of me visually. There's no question. And for better and for worse. Yeah, me too. I think that's human isn't it i don't know if everybody's process works the same i really don't i mean i can't speak for other <laughs> people because some people may hold stuff in their head and that's what works for them the best or um you know ignore more easily what they see like it's one reason why you know i t- uh, i once had somebody tell me i was a visual spatial thinker uh and that some people are uh, I guess linear other kinds. I don't know if these things are true. There's, there's some website visual dot spatial, whatever. And they were like, here's 10 things. Like, did you know the answer in math without knowing how you got there? Which when I was a kid was an issue for me, uh, when I still did math or <laughs> knew stuff about math. Um, and the other thing was like, is everything a mess? I used to leave stuff all over the place. And I real, it took me a long time to learn that I'd left it all over the place because I was always visually mapping one thing to another on some level, like the relationships between things. Yeah. Or my thought process. I was a very relational thinker. And I, and when I thought when she made this connection for me, I thought a lot of the people I met when I worked on the web early seemed to naturally think that way. And that's why we seemed like the web made sense to us. And there were the answer people like, well, internet, that seems dumb. And you know, you're just like, Oh, I was not a computer person before that, but that made everything uh, work for me. And I've since learned other ways to very organized, relatively minimalist environment that I live in. But, um, but I had to learn to give everything, whatever, and to put something, if I had to remember it, like at my stairs or where my keys are, or you know, like there so that I would do it. Because for me, you're saying you can't let go of the thing you're thinking of. Part of what's hard for me is if it's not with me, I can bury it and not even if it's the thing I most deeply wish I was working on, I will, it will help me not get to it if it's not right there. That is the reason I use all of the apps I do because I, I have the exact same issue. I get that. And it's also why I can take notes in mind maps way easier than in a list. Cause that's the way I see things. Like I learned to do both. Like I went through law school, so I've certainly learned how to be like one A, B, C. Like that's literally how you write legal things. So I can do it, but it took me a long time to realize, oh my God, it was like I tortured who I am and forced myself into this other process. I'm very interested. So when I'm also working interactively in shows and trying to build these ways of doing things in social space, I'm tracking and interested in what's happening between people and how you change kind of an energy or a feeling. Um, and that for me is so much about the relationships between people and getting to know them and having more of the energy of who that person is be publicly there. And so I can know that we can actually connect because if I don't really 
know you. And if I don't help create a space where you can be yourself, I, you're going to stay much less known to me and vice versa. So that's a lot of what drives the way I'm interested in working. But I've had a lot of um, mental models for that have been different kinds of apps and things I've seen software developers do because I feel like a lot of developers like you are very creative about, well, the business models they've used are very different than what the entertainment business was used to using and I think are interesting, but also these kinds of relational like, okay, this thing can connect over here. Just, I don't know, this ghost note thing might be more than I could personally handle, but even just thinking that way is interesting a little bit to me. I, I I will drop in here that my app marked well, Mark II, does, it integrates with mind mapping apps like iThoughtsX and MindNode and will convert a mind map as you write it into APA style outline with your 1A, 1B. It's uh, because that is the way that I think, but so many times I need to provide a more linear outline of things. It lets me just instantly <laughs> convert between the two. I'm looking for this. I don't even know this app. Marked. Uh, go to mark2app.com. Mark2, the number two? Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, is that because for you it's been tough to go back and forth or this let, let you cheat more quickly kind yeah, of? It is, it's cheating because if I'm faced with having to write things in an outline originally – I get I I can't elaborate on things. My brain doesn't <laughs> move from in a sequence from one topic to the next. I need to be able to pop topics in, move them around quickly, uh, and then just elaborate on things in real time. You know, I just hit tab, type the next idea, and if it's under the wrong section, I can just drag it to the, the appropriate section. And which is part of why I've started creating shows the way I have. Well, also I've added another cheat to it, which is that I have someone to talk to, right? If I work with an audience. Yes. Yeah. So one, you get some of the benefit you get in stand up, which is stuff works or it doesn't work and there's no faking it. That's kind of like, right. You posting your, your app and like other people are using, you can see as they use it, how, how it works. Right. Um, so that helped, but also, um, because I don't work sequentially rarely. I mean, there's often a story from here to there. Like this show is the most sequential so far of anything I've done. Uh, it is so not natural for me to do that. Um, but it lets me, it means I record ridiculous amounts and have to just transcribe ridiculous yeah. amounts, which I don't always love, but, um, and, and maybe there's some magical way. Eventually if I talk to you enough about apps, I'm going to find a way to <laughs> some way around it, but it does let me, figure out what moment the things work in and then I can, you know, more intuitively plus with the experience with the audiences see like, okay, this helps get this to here. And also because I'm looking for space for other people, which is not how you write traditional scripts. Right. In this quite in the same way. I mean, you are in the sense that all theater and that's why I'm urging people with angels in America. I don't know how much these things are going to refer to one another or how often people are like, here's why your apps are like these plays because you need, (laughs) Uh, the audience is always there's room for audi- audience in it, it, readers and novels and plays in particular. They have you have to bring or a film some of you're you're making the content, the connections they it, for people who make work. If you were going to really experience so-called art that didn't make that made every connection, it, it would be brutal. It would just be like the most expository, boring, you know, 
characters just saying, well, I'm going to go do this because here's why I like it and here's why I don't <laughs> like it. And that guy's terrible. Let's go kill him. And you just be like, this is hell. Um, so inherently the audience is in this, that sense and everything and the stuff I make making these shows, they're talking and I don't know what they're going to say and they're going to do certain things. So, um, I need room. And if I'm too linear, well, I probably can't be. But but I do have to interact with people who are really linear. And when I teach workshops for how to do public speaking and how to help run meetings and the kinds of stuff that I do when I teach sort of my approach to people, when I'm dealing with really linear people, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety to approach things the way you're describing because they want that's their containers that everything has to go one, two, three, four. If it doesn't, they're like, who knows where anything is? So you have to address that. At least I found ways to do it and what I'm doing, but I don't know how often, I mean, I guess you don't need to, cause you can just target people who have, uh, I guess, mental processes like you, like me, who are like, Oh, thank God. Now I can move stuff around. Yeah. It turns out we're not alone given that's my primary source of income now. Yeah, I guess, I guess <laughs> not. And how explicit is it when you hear from people that this is why they're wanting to work that way? Um, a lot of people don't realize why their current system isn't working, but they are my cli my customers and my clients with consulting are almost always people who are constantly looking to solve a problem, but without knowing for sure. You know, they'll say, I don't know why this isn't working. I need alternatives. And so that's what my kind of career has been dedicated to. Because mm -hmm. I, I that's mean, a question I face all the time. I, the people that I help with, like public speaking, uh, most of this, I'd say almost every so-called solution or book out there, and most of the people who do training do it completely differently than the way I approach it. Maybe I'm like the Brent Terpster of public speaking. Uh, I don't know. Mine's much more emotionally focused, but it's because I find that's the center of the problem for most people. Like people, people if they self-identify issues in public speaking, they'll want it. The things they'll tell you that they're having a hard time with and the things you can see them having a hard time with when you do it with them are really different than most of what they'll go buy or what they think appeals to them as a good idea to fix, to quote unquote, fix it. Right. Yeah. So, so anything with slides and then apps, <laughs> people build apps and, and all kinds of stuff for this. Like I need to organize my slides better. I, I want to learn how story structure works. I want to analyze that. Um, it's not going to help them. In yeah. fact, it's going to make them worse. So people who are analytic, who think I'm going to do this analytic thing and it's going to make me a better speaker, it's going to make you a worse speaker. Because the, the fundamental issue with being in a room uh, with people is stuff I was talking to you about in terms of how I put work together, right? Yeah. It's ha like that I start when I work with people, can you stand in front of a room with other people? That is so difficult for so many people to do. And the reason it's difficult is emotional, not uh, information. Information problems are the least of, of most people's problems in public speaking, but they like to identify that as the problem because they're comfortable because if they talk about information, it emotionally calms them, but they don't think they have any emotional element to themselves as a person. They only identify intellectual stuff. Uh, and we all are, we all have both. So it's, it's kind of interesting to me in that sense, just to hear you talk about, here's how someone comes to you and says, okay, I can't find where my stuff is. So now I understand there's a very roundabout way of saying, I guess I understand why you're saying now that this thing ghost note has a browser, I could think about using it. <laughs> have you used it? I, I have been using it for a few days now. 
uh, since I realized they had added the browser, uh, which we'll call like a central repository. But yeah, that was and a how's really... it affecting you now that you do it? Oh, for the first few days, I use something. It takes a conscious effort to uh, begin to incorporate it into my habits. So at mm-hmm. this point, I can't say that it is beneficial or or a negative yet. I can just say that I it's it's intriguing enough that I'm willing to really attempt to incorporate it. Okay. So what's your third pick? I'm going to tell you two things that have three things that have nothing to do with each other. Four, but they're so great. I'm I'm still going to tell them to you. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to find a way to make them connect because that's what I do. Okay. The main thing I want you to know about is a podcast called Ron and Beverly. I'm going to guess. Not a lot of your listeners know, but if you do, you know, sorry, that's great that you know them. It's incredibly funny. It's the most consistently funny podcast I've found okay. of all podcasts, including much more uh, well-funded television shows <laughs> that are on podcasts that I've listened to comedically. And it's two performers, Jamie Denbo and Jessica Chafin, trained at UCB. Uh, I think Chafin is now in a television show Matt LeBlanc's in that just launched this week or a lot. God, I've lose that just... Uh, premiered look i've changed my language that's how long i've been in or I tech people i just changed premiered to launched um <laughs> and i i met them i mean i know about them because i did a show many years ago that jill soloway was curating that i was i did a little performance in and um, she was interested in my interactive stuff it's a more feminine i think model of uh performance and they were in it and they play these sort of middle-aged jewish ladies uh, who in the conceit of these characters wrote a book called, um, you'll do a little better next time they do relationship advice. And if you're Jewish or, you know, someone Jewish, even if you know, a lot of their listeners aren't, but <laughs> these characters are so on point that it's very easy to imagine they're real for quite some time. And they're in these, these are characters they've done for over a decade, I think. So They've got incredible depth and backstory. It's like they got a whole world that they live in. Uh, and they're just funny as hell. They're ridiculously funny. They had a television show in England. They, they as, a, as a team, you'll see them in a lot of Paul Feig movies. He puts them in, Feig in, in you know, relatively smaller roles. But they are very, very, very funny. I'm big fans of them. And uh, it's definitely on my list. Like on my list of like things I want to do. Like on my go, I, like I super want to want to guest on Ron and Beverly. I love them. And All I love right. the show. And if you just need a consistently funny thing to listen to, they're awesome. The, the I don't know how I'm going to relate to these other things, but I think they're fun to share. Is if you live in San Francisco or you're visiting, this is just like a very quick trick. I'm going to, oh, here's how I relate it because it's like, a, here's the Jewish connection. Um, a very popular place to eat uh, for tourists in particular is Swan's Oyster Depot because it's just the greatest seafood you'll ever eat. But there's a lineup to go to this place. It's this very old joint that hasn't been changed can't use your phone cell phone in there it's like 1945 in this place it's incredible uh seafood and it's only like an afternoon to have dinner there and it's just a countertop but because there's always this line and i live here like i don't want to go wait in line for two hours or three hours i mean people wait in line in san francisco at this point to eat anywhere but this is this is like double or triple any other line and i learned you can just call in an order so what I'm going to recommend is if you want to have like the best locks you've ever had in your life, 
you just call Swan's Oyster Depot, you order it, say I want you know, an order of this or half order of this to go, and it could be ready in 10 minutes, and you pick it up and just take it to a park. And it's so good that here's a Shanza for you. Here's a little Giddish for your four Jewish listeners or whatever. Um, it's not even on a bagel. Like they give it to you on sourdough bread, which if you're conventionally like from New York or Jewish, it sounds insane. It's so good. It's still good to eat. That's how good the lox is. So that's my little <laughs> extra tip. If you want like a real special treat and you like smoked salmon. All right. Is that so? Are, are is that your third pick altogether? Ron and Beverly I get, through because I get to sub. I'm trying to figure out how to shove the other ones in as sub picks to Ron and Beverly. It's my Jewish <laughs> comedy. Um, oh, look! I'm finding a way to link it. Here's another sub semi Jewish thing. My new favorite band, Wolfpack. V U L F P E C K, who is who are just fu- amazing funk musicians. The, the dad of the main guy who there's a band leader like Duke Ellington was a band leader. That's what these guys are like in a way. They play 70s kind of funk. They're a rhythm section that plays today. They, their new album that I uh, backed a Kickstarter like many other people called The Beautiful Game is out. Just watch their stuff on on YouTube. And also I would say that Jack Stratton, who I would love to meet, also my bucket list now, is doing things I'm trying to do, but he's doing a much better job than I am, which is he's learning ideas from software development um, in terms of looking at how to promote and build a band as platform a little bit and in different ways to get known. Like he, the first thing they did that got them notoriety was they put out an album on Spotify called Sleepify. You might've heard about this. It was just silence. It was all silent and asked their fans to stream it and they just made money. People streaming while they slept. Very John Cage. That was his little, it was just like a hack to make money. Yeah. It wasn't even like, don't listen to it. Just, you know, this is how the system works. So help us out. But they're incredible musicians. Um, They released a a plugin for uh, audio recording that helps mimic their um, percussion sound. And they, a font, like this is, this is a band that went and built a font and sells a font now. So, Which is funny because their web page is um, it's in a pre block. It's pure like ASCII text, right? And, yeah, <laughs> and with with links in it, but like the header of the site is Wolfpack official site, but written in format of ASCII tab, like guitar tab. This is yeah. funny. Um, this yeah, is like definitely funny. No, and the ton of their stuff is like that. God, I wish I could he- help build another website. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, that's about for drumming that like shows you and breaks down. If you search around hard enough, I have complete nerd faith and everybody else listening, they can figure this out because I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the site that Jack Stratton built with somebody else who did a beautiful job building this site that just sort of shows you certain drum breaks from Bernard Pretty. Like here's 25 drummers to listen to and the things you should study and does a visualization of these drum breaks and stuff to listen to. So he's nerdy in the most interesting way. His dad was in a Klezmer band. This is my Jewish connection. The band's sort of half Jewish. In fact, the new album opens with this Doina, uh, very Klezmer uh, clarinet piece, even though nothing else in the album sounds like that. But he's very Yiddish in a certain way. He does He does sort of comedic characters a drummer in with all of this stuff if you go through their YouTube stuff. So I love both their very indie uh, software-influenced way of 
you know, putting the band out there and organizing it and how he's dealing with things financially. And I'm always as an independent artist interested in how is someone else making work independently, making a living. It's part of how I got to know your stuff. I mean, I knew, I found Envy Alt, but I became really interested, Brett, in the fact that you were making things you really wanted to make, you know, well, with a kind of integrity of like, you know, being able to do it the way you wanted to and, and to directly with other people who wanted it, which is how I, you know, to me is the dream of being able to work that way more sustainably. So I'm always trying to look at what's a way I could do that, which is why I'm like, well, maybe I could do a living room tour of the show. And, you know, I haven't done a big crowd fund for um, a project in a while, but like those are in- things I'm always interested in, which if any of your listeners have other ideas, I'm totally open to like redo my sites and I have lots of tape. I have lots of old projects I want to put out and I'm trying to come up with interesting ways to clean things up, package them so that they're, you know, it's ways people want them and, and then, you know, can support the work that I want to keep doing because I have to make, uh, have to make it work better financially. And I, maybe it's a little more obvious with software how to do that, but, um, you know, you're not working for Dropbox, you're making your own <laughs> stuff, right? And you're not making it hoping they'll buy you. You, I don't think. I don't get that impression. Looking at what you build, that's your goal. No, it maybe should be, but it's not. <laughs> so I'm always interested in seeing how people do that. And so not only is Wolfpack just like just beyond incredible funk band that makes me super happy to listen to every time I listen. Like that's another up there with the angels. Like it makes me feel good about the world. But I think it's interesting how they're they're going at trying to make it work. Um. So. Yeah, that those are also things. That, I mean, you, I, I could talk about that all day. I mean, maybe you've come across other ideas from other, other. Uh, do you get ideas from artists and musicians about ways to sell and put your work out there, or do you tend to get more of those ideas from just how you see other software developers do it? Oh, I'm absolutely fascinated by the way the music industry has changed, and mm-hmm. as as developer or not developer, but artists begin to the the ability to self-publish the ability to be independent and bypass the RIAA and right the whole studio and label thing has been fascinating and not just within the music industry to see how that applies to everything else so yeah those business I mean, that was models sort of the amazing. hope when I started working at Apple early on the first music team there like that was the dream was hey we're gonna have this direct relationship. So I don't know. I, I don't, maybe, maybe it's, it's worked well for a lot of other people, but it's certainly part of what I love about Wolfpack. And I, I don't think they would, I would be shocked if they ever didn't sell their own stuff. This is why I love Fugazi. Yeah. I think it's really cool how they work, you know, and how they split stuff. I, I don't know how to connect, um, uh, propane Jane to any of this other than to say Jews generally vote democratic if I'm trying to shove a theme into <laughs> all these connections. But um, for what's left of this political season, the single most helpful uh, piece of media I've had is following a woman who calls herself propane Jane uh, and her, her handle is at D O C R O C K T E X 26 at doc rock text 26. Uh, she's a psychiatrist in Texas very involved in politics, African-American woman who is the most insightful political observer I, I read or see or watch um, and has all kinds of, uh, you know, as she'd say, receipts. Of, you know, she's not just kind of going off. She'll she'll refer to data and research about like 
here's exactly why. But also it's just a great perspective. We don't, you know, hear enough of. And um, also why I did not worry for one minute that that, uh, Donald would win. During I, I, I would like to point out that I am actually friends with the guy who owns just Doc Rock. No, that's like, funny. I'm, I'm friends with Doc Rock Zero. That's interesting. <laughs> she um, she uh, started writing pieces on Co- Daily Coast. So I guess, yeah. I mean, she doesn't write there every day, but if you want to read longer pieces. But her storifies, if you want to just go see like some really interesting takes on stuff about the culture and where we're at and why things have played out, how they're playing out. Super interesting stuff there. Really worth reading. I mean, some of the stuff I learned the most out of the whole political seasons from her, um, including basically the black women are the pretty much the reason Hillary Clinton's going to be president. All right. So yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to my third pick now. I think you've had eight, eight picks. Oh, so that's I'm sorry. No, that's a record. You should be honored. It's a record. Proud. I'm an enthusiastic uh, lover of things, and, people, and that, art. <laughs> that's what I love. That's why I do this whole section. Is I, the the things people pick are as telling about them as all of you know. Like when they're writing their resume, they don't generally get to include these things that define their personality in ways they don't even realize. So anyway, along that line. I got a galley copy of The Fireman by Joe Hill. It's uh, Stephen King's son. And I, I like I so I had a copy well in advance of the release of this book and I never read it. And I just finally got to it after fin- finishing the last William Gibson novel, started it. And I am only 100 pages in right now. But I can say and it's 800 pages long. So I can say even after 100 pages, that when you say, uh, I think you referred to Ron and Beverly as real people and nuanced life, this book has so quickly hooked me on several main characters and killed a few of them off already. It's like the season premiere of Walking Dead. But the way that he develops characters has been astounding to me. Even if I didn't care at all about the story, I am fascinated by enough by his character development to finish this mm-hmm. book now. Okay. So that's that's what I have to say about the fireman. I'll probably review it again after I actually finish all eight hundred pages. I admire your conciseness. <laughs> I apologize for my verbosity, but I don't apologize for my enthusiasm or my I, insight. I, I don't regret your enthusiasm in any way, so <laughs> but you do regret having to edit me. <laughs> a couple edits come on we'll be oh, fine oh no i'm saying I've, i'm sorry i've made work for you <laughs> it's what i get paid the big bucks for oh you do um now i'm looking at mark so so many i'll have to ask you more questions yeah we'll, we'll, we'll do the workflow show but oh god for yeah. now though let's tell people where all they can find you i'm gonna list okay. the ones i know uh heathergold.com Mm-hmm. is like a central repository for a lot of yeah. this. It needs work. Ah, let's, that's another one. <laughs> Help on that. We'll do that one privately. Oh, boy. And then, yeah. uh, and then on Twitter, you are Heather, H-E-A-T-H-R. Uh-huh. There's also TumbleVision.tv. It's a podcast I did for a long time uh, with Kevin Marks and Deb Schultz, which I think would be might be useful to people if you're looking for um, 
it's about living in a networked world and connecting people across networks in lots of areas and a lot of really good interviews. So I would say check them out as resources, especially if you have issues with oh, product management around lots of groups or lessons around community that are difficult, social environments, digital or otherwise. There's some really interesting people we talk to. All right. And then the show, Everything is Subject to Change, you can find info at heathergold.com slash E-I-S-T-C. Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to host a, a workshop in development, like 10 or more people at your house, or when I tour the show, just email me through the site. I would love to do that. Or if you want to have me come and do training, well, you can get maybe, I don't know if you have, an, I have a lot of URLs. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Can most of them be found through heathergold.com? Yeah. Yeah. That's unpresenting.com, which also you can find through heathergold.com. That, something that's less obvious, only if you're nerdy and curious, I guess, is my first site was subvert.com. It's where I'm going to put this podcast when I when it happens. And that site was originally built by uh, some friends before blogging software, although I think I eventually installed WordPress in there. I have other issues with that site. But there's that's there's an old... There's a lot of stuff there. I think most of it you'll find at heathergold.com. But just if you're curious and you're like an old web person who finds that amusing, <laughs> you might find something about that 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 place interesting. But most stuff is through is through heathergold.com. There are a few uh, videos in my Vimeo account that you're not going to see yet easily through site or through YouTube. So I'm in both of those of those places and on Instagram. Send Instagram too. Up. I'm enjoying Instagram. Uh, Facebook hasn't destroyed it yet. Send me links to your Vimeo and Instagram accounts. We'll include those in the show notes. I di- we didn't get to talk about magicdateday.com. Oh, I forgot I told you about that. I'm going to throw I, it in the show notes so people can check okay. this out. I like to write more. If you lo- And I'd love to know if it's a thing. I haven't really shared it too much. So if people are into it, I'll do more of it. Yeah, I did. I don't cool. know if I'd said with unpresenting. Like I do a lot of training developers often in companies and I just you know, page your duty and automatic and lots of other places. So, um, that's at this point still a chunk of my bread and butter. So, and it's fun because I do like helping people be more themselves in public and get that feeling of what it's like to really connect with audience and be heard and, and have, and not have to over prepare. Although people need to practice at this, uh, for speaking yeah. and presenting in meetings. So that, that's a thing that I'd be super interested if people want to um, bring me to work with their companies. I've toyed with making a regular night for people to practice speaking, but more with the approach that I have, which is, the, and so if there's interest in that, that's another thing that I've had a couple people ask me for. Because Toastmasters is what most people know about. Sure. But the approach that I'm more interested in is people having approaching things like public conversation. So it's less uh, a person saying, I've memorized all this stuff. Um, and everyone, nobody talk, just sit there and I'm going to, I'm going to talk at you for an Lectures. hour. I just think people are more interested if they get to talk, ask and say about the things that are relevant to what they're trying to figure out. Well, I know that's true of me. So that's, that's about this approach. And the magic date day is self, somewhat self-explanatory. Somewhat, <laughs> but I, I will just say that people should check that out. If, if you find Heather interesting, then it is definitely an aspect worth, worth reading through. It's very cool. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of fun. I just had a, oh, I just re- referred back to it the other day because I just had a meeting with someone at Port Costa, a, a guy I might do some work with. We we motorcycled out there. It's a great motorcycle trip from in the Bay Area. I recommend highly if you ride a bike. 
Um, and, and so that particular magic date that they recorded there, we stayed there overnight. It's a cool little spot. I mean, I love just, you know, just exploring fun nice. places and, and the unexpected. It's been very generous of you to have me, to spend so much time with me. Brett, lots to talk to you about. And, well, th- uh, yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate I appreciate the, the two times it took to get this recorded. I appreciate both of them. Well, thanks. And I appreciate you and NV Alt and uh, all the genuine nerds who are still making stuff and, and uh, curious and willing to express that about themselves. I, just, I always like to give some nerd appreciation in, uh, in nerd media because I miss that. I miss the web feeling more like that. So I, I'm, I have a feeling or I'm hoping that folks who listen to your podcast are more in, more in that vibe and less in the I am promoting my personal brand. <laughs> I think they are. I think that's yeah. safe. All right. Well, thank Great. you again. And that was episode, we'll say 177, because things are getting piled up here, but uh, with Heather Gold. And thanks again, Heather. And we'll see everybody in a week. Thank you.